If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. I hope everyone is enjoying this hot June day. Well, where I'm from, it's very, very hot. I'm Kim Hakem, your host. Welcome to another episode of And Security for All. Um, I'm also the CEO of FutureCon Events. As many of you know, we produce cybersecurity events all over North America. Um, pretty soon, we are going to start traveling around the country again. So we're very excited about that. So stay tuned. Check out our website at FutureCon Events so you can see where we are coming because soon we will be in a city near you. We're all excited to start seeing people again. It's going to be great. So today I have another great Yes, joining me, we're going to discuss the cyber uh, vocabulary. We need one name for everything if we plan to win. So we're going to be discussing why is ransomware so rampant now and reclaiming privacy as a business best practice. I have James Azar. He is a CISO and the host of the CISO Talk podcast, Cyber Hub podcast, cybersecurity privacy board member, advocate for positive change. Um, and he is joining us today all the way from Israel. So welcome, James, to the show. Well, thank you for having me on the show. And, you know, second time and second two times, charm. Well, we had a, we will just tell, everyone was ramped up to hear you a couple of weeks ago. But James, since he, 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 why don't you tell the story? Because why don't you tell everyone well, where you're so, from? So I'm traveling, I'm in Israel, I'm due back, you know, in, in, in a few days. And it's been awesome. It's been great. Um, um, you know, I, I love it here. Um, enjoying my time. But uh, you know, I came here for a family wedding. You know, my wife's little sister was getting married. And it just so happened that you know, the family did a uh, karaoke night uh, Friday uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, <laughs> and you guys got to hear people sing off tunes in Hebrew uh, for a little bit. So uh, <laughs> and he tried to close the the bomb shelter door. We did. We closed like the bomb shutters. We we shut down so much stuff and we still uh, we, we still could. Yeah. No. Yes. So for anyone that was tuning in, um, sorry about that. We had to run to a rerun yeah. because we had some te technical <laughs> difficulties. But I do want to welcome all of our listeners on Voice of America. We're also doing the show on LinkedIn Live. So we love having both um, our listeners joining in. And I do want to encourage any of our visitors that are in LinkedIn Live, please put your comments out there because um, we would love to chat with you. But James, why don't you tell us a little bit? It because I've known you for a while, but I really have no idea how you got into your podcast and what your journey's been as a CISO. Yeah, so my, my journey to CISOhood is, is not a traditional one. It, it wasn't a, uh, and I don't think there's a traditional journey to being a CISO, being that the role is so fresh. But nonetheless, I, I founded several companies. Uh, that were not security based, but were rather in the fin fintech financial mm -hmm. services space. 
uh, worked those organizations and was so technology focused. And one of the things about technology is security. And I think um, having that mind from, from my time in the military was really critical. And so how do I secure my perimeter for the products I was, I was uh, building and the solutions we were um, offering financial services companies and fintech organizations. And so doing that, I started focusing more and more on cyber and ended up really leading our security team uh, just kind of naturally grew into into the role and, and and did my certs and 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 all the good stuff that that's required from an industry perspective and about three years ago i started my podcast it was called originally the cyber hub engage podcast now it's cyber hub uh podcast and CISO talk podcast and goodbye privacy and the other side of cyber and the tech town square um i i do like five shows now <laughs> and um I kind of started them because I wanted to to create content that wasn't focused on technology, but rather focused on the practitioner. And so focused on the people who are actually doing the work, the challenges they were encountering, the things that people need to do in, in order to be successful in security. And I think a lot of times that's not, you know, buying another, you know, solution to implement in your environment. Sometimes it's just the implementation or, or just the utilization of technology that's already existing to, to win those battles. Well, um, it looks like you have some friends that have already joined us. Spencer, La Plaza, is it my saying that? Or yeah, well, welcome to the show, Spencer. He he has some nice comments about your shirt. Yeah, he's, he said he uh, without his ugly shirt. So I, I always wear black, Kim. You know that, and and so. Um, <laughs> Uh, I did a fundraiser for the Wounded Warrior Project where um, based on the money people were donating, I wore Paisley shirts that, you know, our, our mutual friend, the guy that uh, Eddie uh, wears yeah. typically, yep. Um, yep. you know, Eddie and I co-host the Town Square. And so we were just, you know, Eddie, people were like, James, we'd love to see you in Paisley. And I was like, well, let's raise <laughs> money uh, to do that. So I wore Paisley and those shows are hideous. And I'm well, debating taking that content offline or just putting a big emoji under <laughs> my face. Those are good shows. We we enjoy. I like watching them. Well, let's talk about a little bit um, about this latest ransomware payout. Mm -hmm. What's your thoughts on the meat industry? And for those people, because this is called cybersecurity for all or security for all. So we do have listeners that um, maybe you can fill us in on what happened and how I can't believe they paid uh, I don't know that did. I can't believe that they paid. So, so I'm I'm a little uh, <laughs> I want to say I'm a little uh, perplexed on this one. So, uh, I, since I started a business, I kind of understand the CEO's position. At the same time, let me give some of our audience a little playback. So, JBS is the largest meat producer on planet Earth. Um, most of us get our meat through JBS. We've never heard of them until now. But JBS is the largest meat processor in the world. They own uh, it's pork, uh, uh, beef, and poultry. They do it all. And they were held at ransom, which shut down their manufacturing in North America and Australia, uh, ironically. So kind of like very interesting to, to, to specific countries that are big consumers of, of beef. At a time where, by the way, consumer pricing is rising significantly, we saw, I think, the CPI index rise by 5%. This week, the highest rise of consumer, the CPI consumer pricing index went up by 5% this week, which was the highest it's ever gone up since 2008. Um, so all of our goods are going up in prices here. 
So they were held at ransom, uh, allegedly, according to several reports, they were asked to pay $22.5 million, and eventually they paid uh, $11 million to, um, to, to get back online and eliminate the ransom uh, where a threat from their environment. You could look at this as kind of like being like Colonial. Colonial paid just around 75 Bitcoins, I believe. It was, which amounted at the time to around $5 million. This could be a setup, meaning this could be money that went in somewhere and the FBI and DOJ are watching that wallet and eventually are going to pounce on the people who were paid. The other part of this, and, and I think I'm going to surprise some people listening and watching, is I kind of agree. I don't like when we pay ransom, but I don't envy the decision-making process that JBS had to go through. And that decision-making process has to go all the way through to the all the employees they sent home, all the um, supply chain vendors whose business stopped because they were no longer producing for them, the stores who now had to look at the fact that maybe they couldn't provide the goods, meaning beef and chicken, to their consumers because of this. And so... I'm kind of looking at this and going $11 million to keep, you know, but by my most modest estimation, JBS employs directly or indirectly over a million people globally. So. Well, it's interesting. And, you know, Colonial Pipeline, I mean, their CEO did come out and say, right. you know, we, we just weren't prepared. So do you think that, you know, we're going to talk about how, how, well, first of all, why do you think that ransomware is so rampant now? I mean, we've had COVID. It's a cash business. Well, right. And do you, it's just crazy every day. It's a new story. So, so yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing the, the height of it. There's another aspect to it, which is there's been very little um, detractors, meaning there's been very little ways to 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 make sure that people don't do this simply because there's no real consequences to ransomware you don't go to jail you get charged with very old computer crimes if you're ever caught you know you do maybe five years maybe maybe and you know we still don't have you know some people have done seven some people have done ten but not for ransomware more for data breaches but we haven't seen a full prosecution of someone from ransomware so it's attractive because it's easy. It's being offered as a service no different than going to QuickBooks or any SaaS service you use to, to, to initiate an attack. And you well, make money off of it. Well, um, Nicholas Blanton said, I can't believe the FBI went and revealed that they have the capability to track crypto wallets just to recover a few million dollars. And now our adversaries know this. Yeah, I mean, the FBI at some point had to reveal that they had this capability. And I think part of it is they're trying to create some place where if you're not getting paid in crypto, right? Let's say you're not getting paid in crypto. How else are you going to get paid? You know, gold bars isn't an option. <laughs> so it's either bank transfers or crypto. And so I think the FBI is saying we can track you in crypto and we know where you are and we know who you are. It's maybe a way to get some people outside of the game and not 
getting more people to sign up. And we saw that with the dark side ransomware, the people who went after uh, Colonial, you know, they disappeared off the face of, of the earth. They don't like they've been, you know, they've kind of been John Wicked out of everything. Right. Like but they how shot do we someone know in the that? place they shouldn't. I mean, how do we know that? Don't you think it's, you know, they 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 got caught and they were probably told to move. I mean, how do you know that they're well, not renamed? In, 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 so in the cyber criminal community, in the dark web, in the underground, they're persona non grata in a lot of different forms. And so because they're persona non grata in a lot of different forums, we're starting to understand that there's very little of of a desire for people to want to be engaged with dark side i think dark side and and, and the rants and the attack on colonial was the line in the sand for the u.s government and for a lot of private enterprise when it got to the white house when it increased the price of gasoline to the american consumers it brought in a different type of attention to ransomware the doj pre before colonial set up a ransomware task force and its entire job was to coordinate with the fbi on pursuing ransomware uh attackers and threat actors globally through the network of the department of justice so you know with the jbs specifically if we go back to my to my initial point you know we're going to see more ransomware it's 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 a it's norm and the other part of it is can we we made this happen insurance companies paid ransoms yeah CNA insurance paid 40 million dollars no one's talking about that why not they're the insurer and they got held at ransom which means their data got exfiltrated which means that the attackers that got cna most likely yeah, cna yeah and what was credit. that? It was like twenty-five million or forty million. Forty million. Forty million dollars. Yeah. yeah. So so CNA paid forty million. So imagine this. Here's here's a scenario. I don't know if it's real or not, but it sure is plausible. I um, breach CNA. I launch a ransomware attack. I get all their data. Now I have all their policies. I know all the companies in the world who they're insuring. I know how much money they're insuring them for. I know the terms of the insurance. I know everything. So now it's very easy for me as a threat actor to go and scan for all of the CNA insurance clients and everyone that I find with an easy vulnerability, ransomware attack. I know exactly how much money to ask them for. I know that they're going to pay and I know that I can help them recover and get them back quickly. So CNA Financial was, there were actually a they were providing insurance for ransomware as an underwriter for cyber wow. insurance i didn't know that wow they're the biggest one in the industry i guess most, i should know that yeah most one to five million dollar policies of cybersecurity uh insurance are it's underwritten by cna cna was the market leader so do you think that cybersecurity insurance or ransomware insurance is going to start going through the roof because it's gone. of I don't think they're going to insure against ransomware ever again. Really? They're losing money hand over fist. Wow. So what happened with CNA? Are they, I mean, they're huge. So, I mean, are they still? So our, our, our listening audience couldn't see what I just said, but they're hush about it. That uh, the, Their PR people have paid a lot of money for no one to talk about it. 
like no one's talking about CNA. And to me, CNA is more critical than Colonial or JBS. It really is because it's the insurance company. And I said, <laughs> it's funny when uh, my organization, when we, we when we did our insurance underwriting, I sent the insurance company before we filled out any of their paperwork, a data security worksheet to fill out. I want to know how are you going to secure the data I'm about to send you because, well, I'm providing you with a lot of data so you can underwrite my policy. And if you happen to get uh, breached and someone gets it, well, now they know everything I use and now it makes it easy for them to attack my organization. So help me, you know, understand. And I had insurance companies say, we're not filling this out for you. It doesn't work this way. And I'm like, well, you want me to give you data about my security posture. You don't think I'm entitled to know how you're going to store this data? So did you find, I assume you left that insurance company. Did we you did find it. one? We couldn't, um, my, I, I lost that battle. I lost wow. that battle. My CFO and CEO were just like, hey, we're, you know, they don't want to fill it out. We need insurance. We can't play around. We don't have time to shop around. Right. You know, we've got a relationship with these guys. You know, they'll give you a 15 minute phone call and answer some of your questions, but they're not going to fill out a questionnaire. And, I, you know, I explained the risks to the business. And I said, this is what we stand to have happened to us, but it's a battle I lost. Um, Nicholas said, there are rumblings that the next three largest cyber insurers are considering getting out of the cyber arena entirely. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then um, Spencer said, it is a lose situation because there are more claims going out than that can be paid. And and how much of their data are these people really getting back? Isn't it a very low percentage? So with Colonial, um, the uh, backup key that they got was so slow that they ended up restoring from backups and then going in and just restoring the missing pieces from the backups they had um, from the keys that they got from the, those companies. But in some cases you get 30% of your data back. In other cases you get 70 and in some cases you get nothing. It doesn't work. I've seen people who've paid, you know, a million dollars in ransom, get a key and the threat actors were amateurs. They didn't know how to set it up and they couldn't retreat. They paid a million dollars to get nothing. So when the Colonial Pipeline CEO admitted, like, we weren't prepared. So do you think now CEOs of, especially these old school companies like Colonial Pipeline, I mean, do you, do you think people are opening their eyes? And I mean, what do you think is going to so, happen next? So, so, you know, I have a different thought process around um, when CEOs open their eyes. Had he been in handcuffs? everyone would have opened their eyes. He mm -hmm. went to testify like many other CEOs. You guys all remember, you know, Richard Smith, the CEO of Equifax, going in front of a, you know, a, a congressional hearing and testifying. We remember, you know, the big tech guys go and do the same thing. And, you know, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but you've got lawyers on retainers. That's what they're there for, 
right? They're, they're there to make sure, you know, you don't get yourself in trouble and you answer a few questions and you go home and, you know, the story dies and you move on. And you do it because you want to get the government to, you know, solve some problems for you that you inherently cannot solve, um, you know, doing what you do currently at the moment. And that and that's all it is. I don't know that you're going to see the only time people pay attention is if something really bad happens, meaning someone gets fired or someone goes to jail. And I don't I'm not advocating to throw CEOs to jail. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but I'm saying that if there was a fine against that CEO levied by, let's say, the SEC for saying we weren't prepared or by the U.S. government. Right. Then other CEOs would pay attention when you go to someone's pocket or you take away their freedom or you you sanction them in one way, you tend to get more people paying attention than what you do with just a, uh, a th- you know, Kim, a simple like, hey, <laughs> uh, I got to go testify in front of Congress. So you think that is going to start happening where I mean, it, it almost seems like it's going to have to happen where there are going to be fines by the government if you don't have certain you know, um, security, you know. So CMMC for the DOD has set up kind of like a protocol around security guidelines based on the data you process, right? And so CMC is is kind of, I think, you know, outside of NIST 853, uh, which is a framework for cybersecurity, uh, you know, framework for, for the cybersecurity defense plan, uh, CMMC is a very, very effective plan. And it's v- very helpful for a lot of organizations and a lot of people. I don't know that the government is going to go and start finding organizations. I think that's an overreach. I think the that's likely going to raise the cost of doing business. I don't know. You know, a lot of times when we struggle as security people, uh, I don't know for whatever reason we think that government can solve our problems. And I am in the far belief that the less the government is involved, the better it is. What I want from government is real partnership. And I want government to create deterrence from nation states to attack my, me as an organization. So when I say deterrence, I mean the U.S. government's job is, you know, the federal go- government's job if you read the Federalist Papers or the Constitution, they had a very limited role. It's now very expanded and it's very big and we're not going to get into that discussion. But I would hope that one of the pillars that the federal government adds to, you know, what they use our tax dollars for is to create deterrence from nation states and threat actors from attacking U.S.-based organizations, meaning you attack us and you're based in country X, we're going to limit imports from that country and we're going to add a tariff to their imports for coming in. And that's how you get that host country of those threat actors to look at those threat actors now and start going after them to take it out of business because now you're hurting their overall economy. And so so do, you, do you think that's what happened with Colonial Pipeline, the attackers there, you know, that that they were obviously, I think, from a nation state, do you think that's why they were ran off because they kind of crossed the line? I think if they were they were hired by a nation state, they weren't nation state. They were hired by a nation state to do the attack. Right. We know that. We've seen yeah. those conversations. Um, I think they ran because in any other world, 
the colonial ransomware attack should have been an act of war. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's a very, I don't want to say radical thing to say, but if you attack our critical infrastructure, it's an, it's an act of war. And an act in war should have a war-like response. Um, Nicholas, well, we have a couple of comments. Um, Spencer first said, I wonder if there was a deductible with the ransomware claim. I'm sure. There are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's always deductible Spence. Right. And then Nicholas said, they were in over their head and didn't expect the fallout. Well, that's what most people are when they get hit with a ransom. I would say. Yeah, I, I, I think what he means is the dark side people. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, he means yeah. dark side didn't expect the uh, fallout. Right, uh, right. From from the colonial pipeline. Because they, they didn't move the money from the wallet. That's the other part. Is The FBI was able to seize that money pretty quickly. Because uh, they didn't move it. Only 50. The, the colonial really paid only 15% of the value of that ransomware, of that ransom attack. So when we're talking about some of the cyber vocabulary and what we need to do to win, I mean, I know it's everyone's fear that what happens if something happens to our infrastructure, our power, you know, our water, how do you feel that's being protected or do you think so, that's so, vulnerable? So let's start with the inherent topic for our, our show today, right? Cyber vocabulary. So you and I, we talk about dark side. But before dark side, I can give you any APT that has multiple names. And APT is an, an advanced persistent threat. Um, and these are groups that are essentially uh, given names like, you know, Crazy Panda or whatever, Dark Tiger, I don't know, whatever names they give them. And all of these different APTs could have three, four different names. In fact, the people that attacked SolarWinds, uh, the, with the Solari attack on Microsoft Exchange, they were given a name by Microsoft, another name by Palo Alto, another name by Cisco. I mean, why? And everyone's kind of dubbed and gives them a name. And I'll start with that. That's a problem. And I'll tell you why we have a problem and why inherently CISOs and cybersecurity practitioners and people like yourself, Kim, we always come back and say, why can't we get CEOs or board members to pay attention? Well, here's why. We're confusing the living daylights out of them. We are. We're giving things multiple names. And, you know, James says name X. Kim says name Y. Board member goes, I don't understand what X said or Y said. I'm going to go look it up. And they go to Google. And now it gets really, really complex because now they see that it's not only got an X and a Y name. It's also got a Z name. It's got a C name. And it's got a W name because everyone called it something different and everyone's looking at it completely different. We, we do that all the time in our industry. We don't have a, a repository of, you know, we found these guys, this is gonna be the dictionary we run. This is gonna be the database, right? Sorry, not dictionary, database. This is gonna be our database. This is APT 97 and we're gonna call them, you know, banana. And that's what they're that's what they're going to be known henceforth, banana. And everyone's going to call them banana. And when banana does a ransomware attack, we're all going to call that ransomware attack the same ransomware name. We're not going to start calling it Dark Side and Revel 
and because those are all different groups, but a ransomware attack is a ransomware attack. So now, you know, I've got people in my board or people I know that sit on boards that are emailing me or calling me or texting me and asking me questions. James, what's Revel mean? What's Darkside mean? I don't understand this. Who should I be more concerned about? The Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the, you know, Eastern Europeans, the Southeast Asians? Like, who should I be worried about? I don't know. I mean, I'm looking at all this stuff and I'm confused. And I think that's inherently our challenge when we look outside of our industry and we're trying to simplify things for people who aren't security minded, but are business minded people. You There's know, one name for KPIs. It's KPIs. It's it's interesting. It kind of reminds me of hurricanes. You know, every hurricane that comes in gets a name. We remember the big ones. We remember Katrina, but, you know, we don't remember the hundreds of other ones. So it's the same thing if you're in that industry, if you're watching right, weather, you know. But, but so imagine in the U.S. we called it Katrina. Mexico called it Maria. Mm -hmm. Canada called it John. And the Bahamas called it, you know, Sean. Mm -hmm. So what's so the solution? I mean, where, where do companies go? I, 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 that database doesn't exist yet. Right. Right. Because it requires a cooperation. But maybe you and I will do it, Kim. Yeah. Maybe we decide that, you know, we're going to create a database for names. And if you want to be recognized by the industry, you got to come to the, you know, Kim and James database. And that's where you register your APT and that's where you register your ransomware. And whoever comes in first gets dibs on the name or we just make a repository of names that people, you know, create. And when you submit it, you're automatically given a name. We don't even ask you. Like, right. You know, think of, you know, naming your kids. Mm -hmm. How much, you know, would it be better if the hospital just came to you and said, you know what, Kim, your baby looks like an Annie. Here's Annie. You're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, um, Nicholas said standardized naming by one dedicated entity. Yeah. I mean, there needs to be some sort of one set standard for us in security because Kim, you're, you're, you're a diverse businesswoman who's been doing this for quite some time. If you had to deal with, you know, if your accountant came to you and said, well, this form is the same as this form, but it's really just called a different name. Why? Well, because these guys call it X and these guys want to call it Y. Yeah. It sounds like you, some forms that I have to fill out for insurance so but yeah. but it's I, I get what you're saying but for again going back to that ceo that you know the guy that is ultimately you know having to pay the ransom you know how do they go back to reclaiming privacy and start having better you know best practices like let's kind of steer away from you know the ransom and go back to how to avoid that happening to these companies. So, so here's the thing about ransomware or ransomware is the result of uh, a few different things. And I think Roger Grimes said it best. And I wish I had my notebook in front of me because I wrote it down. Um, but the, the success of a, a ransomware attack is the result of a lot of things that have gone wrong in your organization over a period of time. And so I don't know that you can stop ransomware attack because it's, it's an 
it's an unfair expectation of security professionals. And what I mean by that is it means that we have to be perfect at 100% of the time. And 100% perfection just does not exist because there are things within security that are out of security's control. And patching a system is one of those. And most ransomware attacks happen because of a patch or because of missing a patch or not patching correctly or not implementing correctly or not putting in the right controls. And some of the reasons those things take place isn't because a company's unprepared. And maybe in the case of Colonial, you know, the CEO came out and said we were unprepared and that might've been the case. Um, But in, in other cases, it's, you know, we couldn't get the patch done because it interfered with business continuity and business operations. And the way we utilize the technology with the patch would have disabled a critical part of, you know, the software's operations within our environment. So we did some workarounds, but those workarounds weren't very efficient. We had to find time and, you know, we put together stuff and we spent, you know, four or five hours thinking of a, of, of a way to solve it. Then we spent three hours doing it only to find out it doesn't work. And then we've got to regroup and do it all over again and try to find why it didn't work and study the reason and go back and fix it. I mean, everything I just said is real and happens every single day. So an attacker comes through, he wakes up in the morning, he goes, here's a list of companies. All right, let's go. Which one of those can we get? We wake up and we have our stand-up calls. And then we've got to review alerts and different emails that have come through and we're looking at reports that are coming from our SOC or our MSSPs and now we're trying to evaluate what are the next things we need to do and how do we need to address them and we go into a meeting with the relevant people to make a decision and that meeting can take anywhere from 15 minutes to four hours depending on you know the size of the organization the complexity of the issue meanwhile Mr. Attacker over there is is in an organization having the time of his life, you know, encrypting data and files and getting ready to launch his attack. Meanwhile, we're all sitting in a meeting room. And I think that's that's inherently our biggest challenge is software isn't standardized for a defender, but it's very standardized for an attacker. So we have a couple of questions. I'll let you take uh, David Hurley if you want to take his question. Yeah, so he, he talks about the MITRE attack help. It, it, it would if MITRE could do it yeah i mean if the miter if the miter organization decided to say we have an attack framework we have all the will APs. you read his whole question so our listeners on voice of America? yeah absolutely yeah. i'm sorry about that so does no the miter attack framework help with standardizing apt naming it does in one way but you still have four or five names to apt on miter so if miter came out and said we're going to create a bunch of names kind of like how they do it with hurricane seasons so with hurricane seasons, they name them in, I think, like February. They create all the names for all the hurricanes. And then as a hurricane's identified, you know, they start with A and end with Z. So it's Alex and then it's Betty and, you know, then it's Charlie and then it's David and, you know, et cetera. And so um, if they did something like that, then, yeah, I mean, MITRE could definitely do it. They've got the capabilities. You know, I wish they would. Um, and then Spencer said, which OS is getting hit the most? Microsoft. No so, doubt. So 70% it, of, I think 70% of attacks on enterprises are done against Microsoft systems. So what's Microsoft? I mean, like what's their, what are they doing about that? So Microsoft's done a lot from a security perspective. 
a ton. Um, if you look at the Microsoft Exchange uh, Solari, uh, you know, challenge that we had three months ago, I thought Microsoft did an unbelievable job in communicating what was happening and what organizations needed to do. In fact, I wrote an article on Substack called the Microsoft Doctrine, which I believe was the ultimate transparency. Um, um, a lot of it is through PowerShell, um, and that's a comment by Spencer, by the way. But yeah, it's Microsoft through PowerShell. It's inherent weaknesses in the architecture of old Microsoft technology that's implemented in very, very large organizations, stuff that was done 20 years ago that still is the main brainchild of an organization and it can't be fixed very quickly. And I think that's the problem. Um, that that's that's the problem we see today, um, and and and, it, and it's significant for um, for a lot of organizations because you know you're working with Microsoft and the transition to the cloud, and now Microsoft's doing the whole you know Azure Active Directory, so you know an Active Directory that's cloud based rather than on prem like a traditional you know what have been an active directory and it also functions very differently from a traditional active directory uh, which is also going to be very um which is also going to create a whole new set of headaches uh but but i think microsoft's done a i want to say a, an unbelievable job thus far of just trying to communicate this stuff and you know they're the leaders on patch tuesday everyone waits to see what microsoft has to say their write-ups are excellent their patch deployment is excellent I mean, Microsoft is the standard when it comes to dealing with software vulnerabilities. So Spencer said, I also heard China, India, Russia are working on a new OS. I mean, isn't it going to be pretty hard to do something bigger than Microsoft? Not really. So uh, Russia and China and India are looking at this as a sort of national security kind of thing. So they want to create their own internal OS because to them using Microsoft, you know, it's it's kind of like how we look at Kaspersky and then no offense to people at Kaspersky, but you know, Kaspersky is a Russian cybersecurity company. And some people look at them and go, well, they're Russian. How much do I trust them? Well, in China and Russia, they look at Microsoft and go, it's American. How much do we trust them to not share our information with the U.S. government? Now, we inherently as Americans know that, you know, the U.S. government can't just go into Microsoft and say, give me everyone's data. They've got to get a subpoena. They've got to go to court. But nonetheless, there's still ways for the government to get your data through Microsoft, Google, or any other company. So the Russia, India, and, and, and China uh, move to their new OS is predominantly a national security. And it's part of this whole, um, I want to say, I don't want to say anti-globalization, but more of the centralization of software uh, within one country. It's why, you know, China has the Great Firewall. Russia uh, took their entire country off the internet for a full day in December in a test to say, hey, if the U.S. Uh, comes attacking us, could we have our own isolated internet system to allow our citizens to still have access to the internet while keeping people outside out? So what's your thoughts on that? What do you think about that? I think that so, like borders are important and like you know when I, when we fly back we go through customs right and customs has to verify that you've got all the right documents in and if you don't you're not allowed into the country maybe it's time we took that idea to cyberspace and 
we started executing our own defense mechanism of us networks and really it's not hard because the way internet moves is it moves through like you know i think it's like 12 or 13 pipes globally that leave from different hubs across the country to different parts of the world so those borders already exist theoretically and, and physically in underground you know internet lines that run let's say from new york to london so could we put something there that says, okay, we're now going to start filtering data that comes in through specific nations, through these pipes? Could we create a sort of exchange or handshake of the internet? Um, that's something we look for government for. Well, Spencer said, do you think that we are headed for country segregation for each country having their own operating system and having their own private IP address? In China, Indiana, Russia, North Korea, Iran, and other places, yes. I think in the U.S., North America, Canada, the Europe, um, and parts of Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and South America now. Um, they are more inherently focused outside than they are internal. China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, uh, for them controlling the internet is critical to the people in power remaining in power. And so they're going to keep looking for more ways to ensure that they can control their own narratives uh, in their own respective countries. I think in the U.S. that's going to be much, much harder. Uh, I think this would be... Uh, if if the government came out and said we're going to segregate all of our internet and now we're going to start filtering everyone's traffic that's a supreme court case that's a occupy washington dc i always try to imagine and it might be a little silly but when you're thinking of these nation states and you're thinking of the employees that are just trying to hack into over here trying to, to do something when it happens is it like you know you're on wall street and everyone is like clapping and excited because they got you know they did it i always wonder what it's like once they you know they break in so it's, it's, it's actually very interesting. Uh, the Secret Service has a few write-ups on some of the interviews they've done with some uh, cyber criminals they've been able to apprehend and bring to justice. And in their interviews, they talk about a normal workday and when they're successful breaching an organization, there's not a lot of celebration until you get paid. But then when you're paid, everyone is celebrating like, you know, you and I closed a multi-million dollar deal. Yeah, I, I mean these I, cyber these cyber criminals, Kim. They're they're businesses. That's what yeah, they are. They go they're to work business. just like like we go to work. You know, it's yep. crazy. They get so. on Zoom calls like you and I get on Zoom calls. They go sit in a coffee shop like you and I go sit in a coffee shop. They go on vacation. A lot of them have been busted while on vacation, right? Like this guy, I think one of the uh, architects of the. Um, forgot what it was one of the russian apts he took his wife on vacation to spain and the spanish police and the fbi were waiting for him outside his villa at 5 a.m <laughs> and they put him on a plane and, and extradited him to the u.s immediately and the so, same thing happened so can we so how does that because i don't really know the law about if we catch someone here in the united states that's from a nation state do we can we bring them back here and prosecute them? Where's the yeah, law on that? I mean, one of the, one of the challenges we have is our 
internet crime laws are from the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. So they're very outdated. The punishment is also very outdated, right? So the deterrence of um, I steal your, a bunch of credit card information and sell it online, right? So that's max five years in jail. So let's say max if you get caught five years in jail, but you're selling this credit card and you're making probably two to $3 million a year off of it. And you do that for about five to six years. So you made, you know, let's say uh, at, a, at, a, at a conservative level, you've made $12 million. You get arrested, you get charged, you hire a very good law firm that costs you about half a million dollars. You end up pleading, you do two years in jail, but you, you know, and you pay back some money. Mm-hmm. The guy who hacked JP Morgan Chase in 2014 paid $403 million in restitution to get out of, you know, jail. And he's on house arrest to this day. Wow. So um, Spencer said, is the 5G network technology playing a role in the APT debauchery? Um, 5G is going to create a whole new set of technological challenges for defenders. And it's going to create a whole new set of opportunities for our adversaries. I don't know that 5G is going to be able to stop a cyber attack. I have yet to see any proof to to that. I'm, I'm, maybe there is a white paper out there that I haven't seen or, or someone who's doing something around it, but I haven't seen it. So since we have less than 10 minutes left of the show and it's been all kind of gloom and doom talking about all the bad things out there, um, let's talk about some of the positive things that are happening. What are companies doing that are not getting attacked? You know, what do you think are some of the first steps that... that so so I think, you know, the, the, the doom and gloom only become gets there because of media sens- sens- sensationalizing something, mm-hmm. right? Ratings only come when something is sensationalized to a point where people got to click it. I'm a firm believer that we're doing cybersecurity today better than ever before. I am, and people will disagree with me, and some people may laugh, but I honestly think we're doing security today better than we've ever done it before. The headway we've made in the last year alone, from the start of COVID until today, in the uh, IT and security teams, has it's irreplaceable. It's it's five to ten years on a typical trajectory that we did in fifteen months. There's a lot of positives. We transitioned from people working in at, at an office to working from home securely. Because none of the companies that we see are getting attacked through ransomware attacks were done because of something that happened um, by hitting someone at home. It was all traditional network, but the untraditional stuff that we've done with setting up these, um, you know, uh, VPN networks and getting people to work from home and, and, and their own devices and stuff that, you know, people a year and a half ago, a, a year ago, you know, were doing webinars on like, you know, this is going to be horrible. We're just opening ourselves up. We did. We really didn't open ourselves up. We really didn't. We've had some. We've we've transitioned in a global pandemic. We've changed our method of operation and our way of life, and we got better at security for some reason. So. I'm, I wonder if like now the younger kids that are going through law school, like there's got to be because there's got to be new contracts 
that have to cover, you know, these, especially third party contracts. I wonder if those are new classes that, you know, that you have to learn new types of law because of the things that's going on. Because especially if you're uh, infrastructure, if you're a, a CISO of the city, you know, when you, you're in a five-year contract with a vendor, I wonder what's happening with those contracts when they're old and they're not covering them being safe or them so being a, secure. A, a lot of contracts are getting redone with these amendments and and part of it is, is is legitimate and other parts of it is not right like some of the stuff that is being asked is completely legitimate and acceptable and some part of it isn't i can tell you that what i've seen from from my kind of in the chair i sit in is that everyone's been really more transparent so meaning when i'm speaking to a fellow CISO with a company we're looking at uh, doing business with whether they're buying something from us or we're uh, 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 buying something from them, the conversations now have gone tremendously faster, and we're aligning and we're trying to find ways where we can make it work. And I think that's that's one of the great takeaways from COVID. I mean, you know, if we look at what COVID has done, um, you know, the loss of life is 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 very sad, and and it's it's horrible but at the same time it's moved business in a direction where the conversations we're having now are far more effective than they ever were before far more effective mm -hmm. and i think Kim, you can you can you can talk to that because now we see that more and more every single day yeah it, it definitely has pushed us to be more innovative just be more out of our normal what we were used to it, it definitely has changed everything and it's it's you know, from what I do as, you know, an event company, I mean, we had to think out of the box fast. And right. But think of think of your events. I mean, I've attended several of them and they're unbelievably fun. Right. I mean, in a normal event we go to where we're all walking around tables, we're having a few discussions and we go and we listen to a panel, we eat something, we drink something, we kind of have more conversations. We've been able to replicate that in a very, very different way. But I, I mean, I've made more friends this year than ever before. And I remember I agree. all of Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> like my relationship with my attendees and my speakers is just on such a deeper level. I've gotten to know them because you're at an event, you're in and out fast and you're not going to remember. You're going to have a few relationships, but it's just been different. I, it's when we go back out to the world, which is happening pretty quickly, you know, we'll still have a hybrid of virtual because there's really busy people that can't make events, but they still like to see our events. It, it's just a whole new world. And that's just us <laughs> in our business. Who I would so, have never done that, you know, had it not been for COVID. So, so I got to tell you something absolutely funny. So today uh, it, it's Friday in Tel Aviv. And one of my favorite places to go on a Friday in Tel Aviv is a place called Shuka Kalamel. Shuka Kalamel, Shuk is, is an Arabic word and it's a Hebrew word. It means market. And Kalamel is caramel. It's, it's an area of South Tel Aviv, uh, not far from where I'm at. So I take my scooter because I go around here in a scooter. That's actually pretty funny. I've had a few people who are in the cyber industry see me ride a scooter and like flag me down and go, hey, 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 James, I'm a big fan of your show. It's actually really funny. I've never thought that would ever happen, but it has happened twice. But I go to I, I go to the um, to to uh, the, the the market today 
and I'm walking around and no one's got a mask on and everyone's talking and people are on each other's faces and people are grabbing food and eating inches from one another. And I was like, Oh man, this is awesome. Like, like life is back everywhere. It is back. It was nice last night. I was with my daughter and we went to dinner and I was like, Oh my God, the waitresses, they don't have masks on anymore. We can see people. It, it, it's yeah. nice. It's nice to see smiles again. And, um, yeah. and hug people like Israel's yeah. a very huggy place. Right. So everyone hugs here. So it's like hugging people and, you know, so Israel a, doing well, I mean, that's good to hear. Cause I know there are some countries that are still having, I mean, Israel issues. has no restrictions at all. Wow. Now I will tell you, I had to do a COVID test before, to fly back to the U S you got to do it like 72 hours. I went in, I did mine yesterday at the airport. Mm -hmm. at like midnight which is beautiful because everything here operates like 24 hours for for that kind of stuff and there were like 50 people in line to get their COVID test done people that these are people who are traveling they're leaving the country wow. they want to go and see the world and everything here is open um public transportation i mean i took a train ride my scooter around town of i've seldom been i mean i went to the airport yesterday without a mask because I haven't wow. had one. I don't carry a mask. Like, well, that's really a don't. problem. Yeah, I've had that happen to me a few times. I get somewhere. I'm like, oh, shoot, I don't have a mask. Six months ago, I had 10 of them, you know, in my car, right. in my bag, everywhere, you know. So we're down to two minutes before we uh, wrap up the show. And it's so fun having you on the show. But at what? first of all, for our listeners on Voice America, please let everyone know about your shows one more time and how they can find you. Sure. So uh, cyberhubpodcast.com is the website. You can go to any one of your favorite podcast listening platforms or go to our YouTube page at Cyberhub Podcast. You can follow us there. All of our contents, audio, video, kind of like you can. And so uh, everything is, is in audio format on your favorite podcast listening platform. Cyberhub Podcast, CISO Talk, Goodbye Privacy. And then I've got a show on Clubhouse, The Other Side of Cyber with the awesome JJ and the Tech Town Square Wednesdays at 8 p.m. on LinkedIn, YouTube and Facebook. Um, and, and I think, Kim, we, we got to have you on the Tech Town Square. Well, I love Eddie Doyle. And um, me too. You guys, you guys have a good time. So, yeah, I would love to be on that sometime when we can air it on Voice America as well. So yeah. we do get we do get a lot of followers that listen to us on both sides on LinkedIn. We may not they may not be here right now, but they listen to our stuff on demand. So it was so great having you, James. Safe travels home. Thank you so much. Um, thanks for being here. And to uh, thanks. I know there was uh, many more questions out there. So thanks to everyone that tuned in today. Um, that was great that you guys joined our conversation. Sorry, we couldn't answer them all. And we will see everyone next Friday at the same time. So again, everyone stay safe out there. Stay healthy and stay secure. And we will see you next week. Have a great weekend. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H A K I M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. 